Welcome. This is Joe Cummings. Thanks for listening. On this episode of Tall Tales Uncovered, we will enjoy the story of the Rough Riders 3, the bootlegger, the Oklahoma Territorial Governor, and the sitting U.S. President. Also including the tall tale of the very first ever boxing match held at the White House. Please send your voice messages to me. I love hearing from our listeners and your feedback is so very, very helpful. Thank you so much. The Rough Riders 3. War is Declared was a headline on April 28, 1898 of the Enid Weekly Sun and Farmers News. President McKinley signed the bill passed by both houses of Congress declaring war exists between the United States of America and the Kingdom of Spain. He also issued a call for 125,000 volunteer troops to serve for two years from among the several states and territories, which included Oklahoma Territory. Congress authorized three regiments of cavalry to be formed from the West where cowboys would be the ideal cavalrymen. Recruits must be a good shot, able to ride anything of horse flesh, a rough and ready fighter, and above all, no fear. The first volunteer cavalry regiment consisted of 12 troops. Three were from New Mexico Territory. The rest were from Arizona, Oklahoma, and Indian Territories. The 2nd and 3rd Volunteer Cavalry Regiments were recruited in Wyoming and the Dakotas. The 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry included cowboys and gamblers, hunters and prospectors, miners, buffalo soldiers, college boys, and Native Americans. From all 45 states then in existence, four U.S. territories and 14 countries. The rallying cry was, Remember the Maine. Remember the Maine. There had been a long-standing Spanish misrule in Cuba. To protect U.S. interests, the battleship Maine was sent to Havana Harbor in January of 1898. On February 15, 1898, an explosion blew it up killing 260 officers and men. On March 29th, the front page in the Enid Weekly Sun reported President Ken McKinley issued to Congress the main inquiry report, which forms a document of about 100,000 words. The message was read in both houses and promptly referred without debate to the Foreign Affairs Committees. The findings of the Court of Inquiry were also read in the Senate and were then, together with the testimony, referred to the Foreign Affairs Committee. 2,000 copies of the report and findings were ordered printed for the use of senators and representatives. In the opinion of the court, the main was destroyed by the explosion of a submarine mine, which caused a partial explosion of two or more of her forward magazines. The mine exploded under the bottom of the ship at about frame 18 and somewhat on the port side of the ship. The loss of the main was not in any respect due to the fault or negligence on the part of any of the officers or members of the crew of the main. 
all eyes looked to Spain. An outraged American public blamed Spain. From Oklahoma Territory came many, including Walter Cook, Walter S. Crawford, Isom J. David, Charles E. Hunter, Shelby F. Eisler, James E. Vanderslice, all from Enid, with Francis M. Staley and Joseph A. Randolph from Wacomus. Also, Frank France from Prescott, Arizona, who is one of the six France brothers who had much to do with making Enid the biggest town in the Strip. They opened a hardware store, lumber yard, brick yard, and the France Hotel, among others. Theodore Roosevelt, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, was offered the command of this new regiment by Secretary Alger. Roosevelt, who felt he was way too inexperienced, recommended Army Surgeon Dr. Leonard Wood. Now, Dr. Wood had served in General Miles' campaign against the Apache. He was one of the few who could stand fatigue and hardship as well as the Apache. He actually, though a surgeon, led more than one campaign against the Apache. He was such a gallant fighter and displayed such courage that he won the Medal of Honor. According to the Hall of Valor, Woods, in the summer of 1886, voluntarily carried dispatches through a region infested with hostile Indians, making a journey of 70 miles in one night and walking 30 miles the next day. Also, for several weeks, in close pursuit of Geronimo's band, constantly expecting an encounter, he commanded a detachment of infantry which was without an officer. The president commissioned Wood as colonel and Roosevelt as Lieutenant Colonel of the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry. Roosevelt said, for some reason or other, the public promptly christened us the Rough Riders. We fought against it, we didn't like it, but we finally adopted the term ourselves. Their uniform was a slouch hat, blue flannel shirt, brown trousers and leggings, boots, and polka dot bandanas. Roosevelt, however, had his uniform tailored by Brooks Brothers in Boston. France was in Troop A, Cook, Crawford, David, Hunter, Randolph, and Vanderslice and Eisler were in Troop D, and Staley was in Troop K. On May 6, 1898, the recruits were sworn in went to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, were assigned horses and trained for 19 days. The Rough Riders, consisting of 1,060 soldiers and 1,258 horses and mules, departed for Tampa, Florida on May 29, 1898, via the South Pacific Railroad to join 30,000 other soldiers to invade Cuba. Roosevelt, stayed at the newly constructed Tampa Bay Hotel where he and his wife Edith enjoyed a final visit together. Due to lack of space on the transport ships, the horses were left behind. The ships landed in Daiquiri, Cuba on June 22, 1898. The objective was to take Santiago. 
Troop D, Oklahoma, and France, Troop A, were in the following battles. The Rough Riders and the Buffalo Soldiers, numbering 1,300, fought at the Battle of Las Guasimas on June 24th against 1,500 Spanish troops. Each man carried three days' ration and 100 rounds of ammunition. They had rapid-fire Colt automatic guns and a dynamite gun. The only horse was Roosevelt's named Little Texas. The Rough Riders were ordered to advance towards the San Juan River. In the stifling heat of over 100 degrees, they moved out but had to find cover wherever they could from enemy fire. The Spanish used smokeless powder. In the dense jungle, the Rough Riders' location was easily given away by the smoke from their guns. They would hear the Mauser bullets coming by them from the Spanish firing, but the enemy was invisible. However, using binoculars, Roosevelt spotted the Spanish hats, which gave them away. They forced the Spanish to retreat. Next, east of Santiago, lay Kettle Hill and San Juan Hill, controlled by the Spanish troops. The order came to move forward and support the assault on the hills in front. Roosevelt said, the instant I received the order, I sprang on my horse. The race up Kettle Hill had begun. In Troop D, Walter Cook was no stranger to the all-out charge of a race. Shortly after noon on September 16, 1893, he was one of the 100,000 people lined up along the border of the Cherokee Strip to race to stake a claim on one of the available 37,160-acre homesteads. Good bottom farmland, well watered with timber on it, would be the best land. The slower riders would have to settle for a lot in town or nothing. However, a 160-acre farm near town could be divided into city lots and bring a good price for homes or business property. In Enid, the postmaster, his assistant, officials of the land office, perhaps some members of the town site board too, all looked to the south horizon for a sign of the racing riders. A dust cloud was forming along the horizon. Out of the dust cloud emerged a lone rider riding hard. Walter Cook was a kid cowpuncher from the Chickasaw Nation on a range pony. Any good trader could get for $40. He had ridden into ground 15,000 rivals and some of the fanciest horse flesh that could be imported from Kentucky. Pat Wilcox also was on hand behind a desk in Art Stevenson's bank to give you the stirring picture of little Walter on that little horse tearing down South Hill across the square and to the claim that formed the square's north boundary in Enid, swinging down as lightly as a cat, throwing off his saddle, looping his reins around the horn, and then setting his stake a good two minutes ahead of Albert Hammer, the second comer. Walter Cook, undisputed winner of the run, and by every rule of the game, winner of the 160 acres worth at the Depression prices prevailing in 1911, more than a million dollars.
Walter probably saw Roosevelt start at the rear of the regiment, open to Spanish fire, as he was the only one on horseback in the open, calling the troopers to go forward, waving his hat, rasping directions to captains, until he found himself at the head of the attack. Roosevelt sent his two aides, Captain Mills and McCormick, on a special duty to get the different bodies of men to go forward. Frank France was a deputy commander of Troop A. His commander, Captain William Bucky O'Neill, moved to and fro and kept pacing. His men begged him to lie down. One of his sergeants said, Captain, a bullet is sure to hit you. O'Neill laughed and said, a Spanish bullet isn't made that could kill me. Then he was killed instantly when a bullet hit him in the mouth. France immediately took the lead, charging his men up the hill amid a hail of Spanish bullets and staked the troop flag in the ruins of the Spanish fortifications. Roosevelt galloped up the hill, passing the shouting, cheering men up to the top of Kettle Hill. He ran into a wire fence. He turned Little Texas loose as he had been scraped by several bullets. Roosevelt jumped the wire fence, thinking his men would all come, but they did not hear him as he led the charge on the adjacent San Juan Hill. At 100 yards, he had only five men. Bullets were ripping the grass all around. Two of his men fell. Clay Green was mortally wounded. Another, Winslow Clark, a Harvard man, was shot in the leg and then through the body. He made not the slightest murmur, only asking Roosevelt to put his water canteen where he could get at it, which Roosevelt did. He ultimately recovered. There was no use going on with the remaining three men, so Roosevelt bade them stay where they were while he would go back and bring up the rest of the brigade. Roosevelt rushed back and brought up the Rough Riders to charge San Juan Hill. Two Spaniards charged at Roosevelt. He fired his revolver that was from the sunken battleship Maine, killed one, and the other ran off. Long before the Rough Riders got near them, the rest of the Spaniards ran off. Once the heights above Santiago were American, the Spanish fleet fled but were destroyed by the U.S. Navy. The Spanish surrendered on July 17, 1898. The Enid Weekly Sun on July 21, 1898 read that Spanish General Toral and 25,000 troops surrendered to U.S. Major General W.H. Shafter. The Enid Weekly Sun of August 11, 1898 read that the Rough Riders came to the Santiago docks in formation. Each company proceeded by a red and white banner, bearing the regiment number with Colonel Roosevelt riding his horse at the head. The troops boarded ships to come home on August 15, 1898. Roosevelt promoted France to captain and commander of Troop A for his bravery in leading his troops. He nominated France for the Silver Star for gallantry under enemy fire. France gained Roosevelt's lifelong trust and friendship. The Rough Riders had the highest casualty of any unit 
as one-third were killed, wounded, or stricken by disease. Captain Capron, whose Roosevelt considered the best soldier in the regiment, was the first U.S. officer killed in combat. Seven Oklahoman Rough Riders were killed and 27 Oklahomans were wounded in Cuba. Most experts agree Roosevelt's personal valor and leadership led to the victory of the day. The Rough Riders had won. Roosevelt noted that in the evening as the bands of regiments played the Star-Spangled Banner, all Rough Riders, officers and men alike, stood with heads uncovered wherever they were until the last strains of the anthem died away in the hot sunset air. The Enid Weekly Wave, September 1st, 1898, reported that Walter Cook was home and looked as bad as all the boys do who went through that terrible Santiago deal. Walter married the widow of a policeman with two children. He settled down as a family man and opened a cafe next to the Monarch Saloon. Frank France went to California but settled in Enid where he joined his brother Montgomery in the hardware business. On April 9, 1901, he married Matilda Evans of Oklahoma City. The couple had five children, Frank Jr., Louise, Matilda, Virginia, and James, who died in infancy. Roosevelt became the Republican candidate for New York governor in 1898, and he won. Little did the Rough Riders Three realize the impact they were about to make on the Oklahoma Territory and Enid. Theodore Roosevelt was chosen by the Republican Party as President McKinley's vice president choice in their select successful election in 1901. On September 6, 1901, McKinley was in Buffalo, New York for the Pan American Exposition. At 3.30 p.m., he was at the massive, ornately decorated Temple of Music concert building for one of his very favorite activities, a meet and greet with citizens. He just loved it. There were columns of soldiers to protect the president. In line was Leon Shulgosh, a deranged anarchist who believed that President McKinley would lead to the end of capitalism if he killed him and he could return power to the masses. His hand was wrapped in a handkerchief to conceal his gun. When his turn came to meet the president, Shulgas fired two shots at close range. The first was superficial, but the second lead bullet pierced the president's stomach. The local hospital was more ready for a stomachache than gunshot wounds as the staff were interns on a one-month assignment. The best surgeon found was gynecologist and an obstetrician who operated without proper surgical equipment and adequate lighting. The surgery led to gangrene. President McKinley died eight days later, making Theodore Roosevelt president of the United States. Leon Shulgas was executed in the electric chair seven weeks later. Somehow, the friendship between Roosevelt and France grew. 
Frank France became a frequent visitor at the White House. Roosevelt appointed France postmaster of Enid in 1902 and Osage agent at Pahuska in 1904. It was a period of great turmoil for the Osage. Their land holdings were in the process of being dissolved from tribal ownership to each family receiving an allotment of land. There was a great controversy over the tribal role among the full bloods, mixed bloods, and squaw men, which were men who married Osage women. Also, the Osage nation had a vast oil pool and had 243 oil wells and 21 gas wells in production. With only 2,500 names on the tribal rolls, each Osage was worth 25,000 to 30,000. In addition, the towns of Cleveland, Blackburn, Ralston, and Ponca arose adjacent to the reservation, ignoring all the liquor laws relieving the Indians of their money. The Daily Oklahoman wrote that France's conduct has been all that could have been desired. France was in the Osage Nation to clean up graft, and his administration has been clean throughout. In 1905, the Edmund Sun paper headlined, Captain France is appointed governor by Roosevelt on November 15, 1905. It read, Captain Frank France, at present agent of the Osage Indians, is to be appointed governor of Oklahoma at the expiration of the term of Governor Ferguson. He was a Rough Rider captain under Roosevelt and has been close to the president ever since. He was backed by the Congressman McGuire faction of the Republican Party in Oklahoma but it is believed that he won strictly on his Rough Rider record. Governor Ferguson's administration has been clean throughout, and he asked for his reappointment on his good record. And his friends believe that only because France was a Rough Rider was his appointment made. France is about 35 years old and will be Oklahoma's youngest governor. He was a Democrat prior to the, his Rough Rider career. Former Enid Mayor Doug France, whose great-grandfather was William Douglas France, a brother of Frank France, provided from his family archive the Washington Times article, Floored President and One Good Place, of November 20, 1905. The pugilists were not professional, yet were experienced boxers. France did box, and they had always been active in sports, and on a semi-professional baseball team in Northern Oklahoma Territory. But Roosevelt had boxed as a light heavyweight at Harvard. The basement was lined with training mats for the sparring to begin. This was a first, especially for the White House. The Washington Times article read, as an amateur boxer, the opinion prevails that President Roosevelt is there with the goods and could hold his own with the best of them. It has just leaked out, however, that one of his former associates in the Rough Riders proved to be too many for him in a friendly bout at the White House. Captain Frank France, 
At one of his first visits to the White House, remarked to the president that he'd heard about the president's prowess as a boxer. The president seemed surprised, but he agreed to about. The pair sparred a few seconds. Then Captain France, seeing an opening, whipped over a cross counter to the point of the president's jaw. Good, said Mr. Roosevelt. Do it again, if you can. The first blow seemed to smart a little as the president rubbed his jaw now and then as a few more light exchanges were made. Then Biff, a right hook to the jaw, and Mr. Roosevelt was down for the count. The president, however, was simply getting warmed up to his work. He arose and went at it again. He had failed to measure the staying qualities of his adversary. The president and the floor met again. The third rap took the stamina out of the advocate of the square deal, and the bout ended. France had knocked down the President of the United States three times. Their friendship grew. President Roosevelt traveled through Oklahoma Territory in April 1905. He also went to the big pasture area of Oklahoma Territory with Quanta Parker, chief of the Comanches to hunt wolves with John R. Abernathy, who caught wolves alive with his bare hands. President Roosevelt would later appoint Abernathy the U.S. Marshal over Oklahoma, the youngest U.S. Marshal so appointed. According to Marcus James, two-time Pulitzer winner and Enid's favorite writer, Walter Cook became Enid's bootlegger. He was arrested many times for his trade, as in May 27, 1910, when the Ina Daily Eagle reported Cook received six months in jail and a $500 fine. The Ina the Weekly Wave of December 26, 1895, reported Walter Cook was arrested by a deputy United States Marshal from Ardmore, Indian Territory, on a U.S. warrant for forgery. The complaint alleges that a little over a year ago, Cook forged the name of Ardmore citizens on checks to the amount of $240. The Enid paper called The Wave, the reporter from The Wave, interviewed Cook at the depot. Cook denied the allegations against him and said he had no fears and he would return home shortly. The Enid Events paper of September 28, 1911 reported the county attorney was short on evidence on the bootlegging case against Walter Cook, and it was thrown out of court. The years had worn down Walter's cockiness down to a kind of brisk geniality. Without hard feelings, he accepted the periodical sojourns in jail as an unavoidable hazard of his calling, which, of course, was selling liquor. There were no hard feelings on any on either side. The judge, who usually sentenced Walter, was actually one of his customers. As this jurist was a sly drinker, enjoying the sport of the better element, which kept the prohibition law on the books, he distrusted the integrity of the average bootlegger who might be inclined to talk too much with his mouth. So the payment of installments on Walter Cook's debts to society probably inconvenienced the judge as much as it did anybody. James wrote that Enid distinguished between the man and the historical figure. No account of the run was complete without the mention of Walter Cook. However, 
There was no connection between the image and the actual man. Judge W.O. Cromwell had been Cook's lawyer and represented him in the epic battles on his claim. Cook staked the first claim, but 300 others came and claimed the exact same spot. They split it into town lots and called it Jonesville. On January 12, 1894, J.D. Bennett and others applied to the Board of County Commissioners to incorporate the quarter section into a town they would call Jonesville. The application was granted. Within two weeks, a whole slate of city officials was elected, schools set up, and homes started. All this without anyone having clear title to the land. Walter Cook, in order to keep his claim to the property alive, built a shack to live in and settled back to let justice take its course. The Enid Weekly Wave of November 14, 1895 reported Walter won the court decision in the Jonesville case. The land was his. But Cook had gone to the Chickasaw Nation to work, but fell very ill with pneumonia. Sadly, he was gone over six months. In Jonesville claim, Cook abandoned his claim and the Department of the Interior agreed, which left Walter with nothing. Jonesville was annexed by the city of Enid. So Cook expanded his cafe with bootlegging. If he was in jail, residents could not enjoy his steaks in his cafe. Judge Cromwell said no one else could turn out a T-bone that was half as good. The first thing Walter did when he finished his spell in jail was fix a stake for the judge. In a Rough Rider twist, Walter Cook was helped because President Roosevelt made Frank France governor who appointed W.O. Cromwell as district attorney for Oklahoma Territory, which led to his being a judge who aided their fellow Rough Rider. France was inaugurated on January 16, 1906, on the steps of Guthrie's Carnegie Library with an escort of 40 rough riders. He was the seventh and youngest governor of the territory. His brother Edmund brought a special train full of 1,000 Enid neighbors to add to the 10,000 already there and a parade 30 blocks long. Governor France made an invaluable contribution to the future of Oklahoma educational system. Discovering that oil companies were drilling on school land, which was section of lands reserved for funding education and public buildings after statehood, they were drilling in Pawnee County without obtaining permission. The governor established a policy requiring those companies to lease the mineral rights. Then he acted to safeguard the state's ownership of mineral rights on state-owned land by securing the removal of the Warren Amendment from the Oklahoma Statehood Enabling Bill. After passage of the Enabling Act of 1906, France took steps to locate the remaining amount of school land by filing all the claims in no man's land, which was a panhandle. His agents acquired virtually all the federal domain in that region for the state. By leasing the land to farmers, the state earned millions of dollars in revenue. 
He was last, but maybe the best, of the territorial governors. He led the state during the Constitutional Convention process. The most famous Rough Rider of all, President Theodore Roosevelt, signed the 46th Statehood Proclamation with an eagle quill pen on November 16, 1907, declaring, Oklahoma is now a state. The three had come full circle. Walter Cook continued at Enid's colorful character, including a stint in Wild West shows. He died at age 68. The Garfield County Democrat of July 24, 1907 read, he will be remembered as a contestant for the Jonesville Quarter and a rough rider in the Spanish War. France ran for governor but lost to Charles N. Haskell. He moved to Colorado to enter the oil business. He returned in 1915 to Tulsa, to head the land office of Cosden Oil Company before working in the oil royalty business. In 1935, the United States Congress finally bestowed the Silver Star for gallantry under fire to him for his actions as a Rough Rider. He died on March 8, 1941, and was buried with full honors in Tulsa's Memorial Cemetery. Chris Madsen, Oklahoma Territory's last federal marshal and a Rough Rider sergeant, attended with two other Oklahoma Rough Riders, Tom Mager and Bill McGinty. France has two paintings hanging in the Oklahoma Capitol, one as territorial governor and one depicting his leading a charge in the Battle of San Juan Hill per the France Family Archive. President Theodore Roosevelt is considered in the top five U.S. presidents. There is a reason he was labeled a human locomotive in pants. He was president of the U.S. Civil Service Commission, head of the New York Police Department, assistant secretary of the Navy, the most famous Rough Rider with his gallant charge up Kettle Hill, governor of New York, 25th U.S. Vice President, and 26th United States President. He set aside 230 million acres of federal land, which would be equal to California, Nevada, and Utah combined, for national parks, monuments, forests, wildlife refuges, refuges, and game preserves. In Oklahoma, he created the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. He took a hunting trip to Africa, took another run at the presidency in 1912, and a 1914 expedition in Brazil that nearly killed him. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906 for his settling the Russo-Japanese War with the Treaty of September 5, 1905. On January 16, 2001, he received the Medal of Honor posthumously from President Bill Clinton for his charge as a Rough Rider that changed the course of the battle and the Spanish-American War. He is the only president to ever be awarded the Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. His son, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, also received the Medal of Honor posthumously for his actions on D-Day in World War II. Roosevelt was a brilliant orator and had a huge literary output. Somehow, he wrote 
126 books, over a thousand magazine articles, thousands of speeches, and the Library of Congress has some 150,000 Roosevelt letters among countless drafts of state papers and speeches. He died peacefully in his sleep, age 60, from a blood clot in his lung on January 6, 1919, in his home, Sagamore Hill, Oyster Bay, New York, where he was buried there in Young's Memorial Cemetery. Perhaps no group revered his grave more than the Boy Scouts of America that began in his first year of office. He was their staunch supporter and would go on hikes with the local Troop 39. He was their chief scout citizen. He was the last president to die in a home that he built for himself. He was the first president to receive a tribute by airplane and to have his remains carried in an automobile hearse. Vice President Thomas Marshall summed up the old warrior's passing best. Death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. In 1976, the explosion of the Maine was open to subsequent investigations by Rear Admiral Hyman Rickover, Department of the Navy. The American Court of Inquiry held its first meeting on February 21st. Dr. Ib S. Hansen of the David W. Taylor Naval Ship Research and Development Center and Mr. Robert S. Price of the Naval Surface Weapons Center volunteered to look at the evidence. The characteristics of the damage are consistent with a large internal explosion. The analysis includes that the primary source of the explosion was centered in the six-inch reserve magazine, which caused a partial detonation of the other forward magazines. In this area, the explosion blew out the sides and ruptured the decks. The bottom was driven downwards, although its displacement, because it was supported by water, was less than that of the sides and the decks. The forward section was separated from the after section except where it was attached by the keel and adjacent bottom plating, mostly on the starboard side. As the forward section turned on the starboard side, the keel at frame 18 was raised upward. At the same time, the after section was flooding downward at that part through which the water was pouring. This area that attracted the attention of the original investigation showed no evidence of a rupture or deformation which would have resulted from a contact or near contact with a mine. Conclusion A fire in bunker A-16 caused by spontaneous combustion of bibitimous coal was the cause of the explosion. Such fires are hard to detect Often they smolder deep below the exposed surface of the coal, giving no smoke or flames, or raising their temperature in the vicinity of the alarm. The bunker on the main had not been inspected for 12 hours before the explosion. A period which experience has shown was ample time for the bunker fire to begin, heat bulkheads, and set fire to contents in adjacent compartments. There is no evidence a mine destroyed the main. It seems the Spanish had not blown up the main. The Rough Riders united the many dissimilar members of our society. 
the Native American with the cowboy and soldier, people of color with whites, the Westerner with an Easterner, and the poor with the privileged. In Enid, the Rough Riders united the historical winner of the run to the bootlegger, the Oklahoma governor, and the President of the United States to form the legacy of the Rough Riders III.